Good to see you all this morning. All right, a few people are happy to be here. Great. It's uh, interesting, I was talking with Chris Hackinson before, how we open it up and you just naturally gravitate back to the seats that you want to sit in. No one sat in the front. For me. All right. We're in Luke. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Most people plan their actions in the present based upon what they believe the future will hold for them. So a person who believes that it will rain later in the day will most likely roll up their windows of their car as they're heading inside. Someone who believes that the stock uh, of initial uh, company is going to take off in value, they're going to invest more money in that stock. And it seems with each passing year, we have more and more technology to make it easier to plan for the future. I'm sure most of you, like myself, wore out the weather app last week, right? You know, it's like 30 degrees cooler this week than last week. 30 degrees. Um, and so we have this amazing technology to, to forecast what's going to be, what's going to happen. We have news sources giving us details on what's coming down the track. We like to be in the know. We like to have the details so we can make a better decision. We like to have all the information to, to make positive and right decisions for the future. Kind of like Marty McFly in Back to the Future 2, right? He purchased the sports almanac. Why did he do that? So that he could take it back to his own timeline and purchase and bet on, on sports, sporting events. I suggest you don't do that. But what if you had the plan on how your life would go? What if you could just see around the corner and make better decisions? Would you be able to do that? Would you make better decisions? And we come to, to Luke chapter 12, we come to the end of the chapter, and Jesus is turning his attention from his disciples to the crowd and the religious leaders, and he begins to warn them of their impending doom if they don't repent. And Jesus is kind, and he's gracious by giving them continued warnings. And his main warning is my main idea this morning. So if you write down anything, this is the main thrust of the sermon this morning. Time is running out, so repent and submit to the king. Time is running out, so repent and submit to the king. I believe this is the main idea of the passage. The crowds and religious teachers were not viewing him as the Messiah. They're ignoring him. They needed to observe the signs. They needed to understand the time. And they needed to repent. And they're living in a time of crisis. And so they have three things that I want to see in this passage. We're going to look in chapter 12, verse 54, all the way into chapter 13, verse 21. And so there's three points here to the sermon. First, they need to pay attention. Second, take action. And third, understand the kingdom. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. And we're going to look at verse 54. First, they need to pay attention. Look with me at 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Since chapter 11, verse uh, 15 and 16, Jesus has been exposing the people's hypocrisy when it comes to demanding more signs of him. 
And he brings this back to the forefront and exposes again their foolishness. People have no problem seeing the signs in the sky before it rains. So they should have no excuse of observing Jesus' life and what he's doing and what he's saying. They have seen his healings. They have heard his teaching. They've seen the incredible miracles. But they refuse to respond to him in faith. They're hypocrites. Do you know what a hypocrite is? A hypocrite is usually someone who pretends to have religious belief and virtue. Really doesn't. They say one thing and do another. But here Jesus seems to be using the word hypocrite in a different way. These people presented themselves as outwardly knowing what was going on around them. People that understood the world. But in reality, they had no clue on the important things that were happening right before their eyes. They prided themselves to know what was going to happen. And here Jesus is saying, it's me. I'm the Messiah. They didn't know the will and work of God. And that proved that they didn't know God himself. And Jesus was was chastising them. They were so concerned with the changing weather patterns, but they were missing the epic changes in the history of redemption. God had broken into the world, coming as a man to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons, to quiet storms, and to bring salvation. All done before their eyes, and they couldn't see it. And time is running out. This season of Jesus' ministry on earth would be gone, and they would have missed all the signs. And so Jesus tells them to pay attention, and he sketches another situation. Look at verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. And he wants them here in this, in this parable, this, this picture, he wants them to understand the sheer urgency of the moments of life, what they're facing. He wants them to understand the window of opportunity that they have right now. This second parable presumes that all listening are guilty and they're heading for judgment. And the only wise thing to do is to settle out of court before judgment where the guilty verdict will come and they will have to pay the ultimate price. For some odd reason, when I was reading this passage, I had a memory just flood my mind when I was 9 or 10 years old and I had a tooth that wouldn't come out and it was crowding other teeth. I had to call my mom to verify this this morning. And, and my mom had scheduled a dentist appointment because it needed to come out so other teeth can come in. But I didn't want to go to the dentist. And I didn't want to pull the tooth. And I sat in this in-between. And I remember very vividly this day in my, my living room growing up in the house, and my mom's literally saying, you need to get into the car. We're leaving. Judgment is coming. And I sat there yanking on the tooth in that moment. Because I wanted to get out of going to the dentist. And it pulled it out. It didn't go. It's a poor illustration, I know. But Jesus is saying, you're going to be dragged to prison. This is your opportunity. Listen. Pay attention. You have an opportunity to respond. They know they're guilty. They know that the verdict won't fall in their favor. So why not deal with it now? Those who reject Jesus today have prided themselves on analyzing all sorts of data in this world, from evaluating football teams and how they're going to finish in the season, to discerning opinion polls, to financial forecasts for their investments, 
to actually watching the weather. And while they made display excellent judgment in one earthly area, they refused to come to a right conclusion about Jesus. And that conclusion, that response will be much more costly than all the other investments that they would make with their money or their time or their homes. He says, pay attention. That's the first point. Second, they need to take action. We're now into chapter 13. Verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans who, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's not clear exactly what episode in history that the people are referring here to at the beginning of chapter 13. There's no record in the writings of other Jewish historians of Pilate mingling someone's blood with the sacrifices. However, we do know that Pontius Pilate could be cruel and ruthless in the wielding of his power of Rome against the Jews. But what we surmise from this is that some Galilean pilgrims in Jerusalem were there and they're offering their sacrifices at the altar and they were killed by either Pilate or his soldiers. And it's ghastly in the details here. An incredible suffering for them. And so why were these people bringing up such a moral atrocity to Jesus? We might think from Jesus' response that they were possibly raising the problem with evil, the issue that many face in our world. But based upon Jesus' response, I tend to agree with another commentary, Kenneth Bailey, his viewpoint. His point is that in the Middle East, reports like this are intended to stir an outburst of indignation and rage in the hearers to elicit a condemnation of the, of the, of the perpetrators. As if to say, now what do you think of that? So maybe they, they bring up Pilate's bloody work so that Jesus would exclaim, he did what? And it's a form of sensationalism. And sensationalism sells. How many have spent their week, this week, watching major 24-hour news networks? CNN, Fox News, CNBC, all sides of the political divide is looking to sell sensationalism and it seems like Americans are just eating it up. Our country is getting drunk on cable news, engorging ourselves with the next big thing to get upset about. And this isn't the point. I'll just, this is free advice. Just turn it off. All of it. Turn it off. Feel your heart will change in a week. Just don't watch. But whatever the, the reasons for mentioning this terrible tragedy here in 13, they're implying, though, that the victims themselves were to blame. Yet Jesus doesn't take the bait. He says, you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And he's implying that this human tragedy is no indication of human sinfulness. Now, he doesn't say that the sufferers were innocent but that the disaster is no indication of the degree of their sinfulness. And then Jesus says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? I don't know about you, I've been following the, the tragedy in Miami and, and hearing the news and reading about it of the 
collapse of that condo building. And now we're hearing some of the desperate phone calls that were made as some were trying to make their way out of the building. Incredibly tragic. I read this week of a 64-year-old woman, divorcee, who had purchased a condo in the building a few years ago and woke up in the middle of the night at the sound of cracking and seeing the crack moving up her wall and quickly getting dressed and running downstairs and says, she said, I kept screaming, God, help me. Please help me. I want to see my sons. I want to see my grandsons. I want to live. Please help me. And she made it out. And yet she retells that her 80-year-old neighbor didn't. And the tragedies that happen in our world should not cause us to think of how foolish those people are to have bought that condo in Miami. Or what they might have done to deserve it. Or how they should be more wise. Our world wants answers. People want answers. And, And I think it's wise to get answers. But not to place our hope in those answers. Because why do people want the answers? What's the driving desire to know? So that they can stop it from happening again. Now, now they, they want to learn how, how it happened. And I, and I think if there's errors that were happening, people cutting corners in construction, you should want to know that and correct it. So don't, don't get me wrong. But friends, we cannot cut out tragedies from happening in this world. We live in a fallen world. And these tragedies should open our eyes to a greater reality. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. We have something far more important to think about when we read and when we see and when we hear of these tragedies. We need to think about our sin and the punishment that we deserve. Jesus warns them twice. In verse 3 and 5, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Friends, earthly disasters are eternal warning lights. What happened in Miami, what happened this week in Tokyo, those are warning lights to us. To pay attention. To look and see. Jonathan Edwards once asked his congregation to give him one reason why God hadn't destroyed them since they got up that morning. I doubt he ever shared any jokes in the pulpit. Very serious preacher. Give one reason why God hadn't destroyed them. He asked them to to consider that every moment that we live, every luxury that we enjoy, every blessing that we participate in is a matter of receiving the grace of God. That it represents God's willingness to be patient with people who have rebelled against Him. God has called every single human being on this planet to be perfect like He is. We are not allowed to sin. There cannot be a little sin here and a little sin there because all sin is atrocity against the holiness of a perfect God. And the penalty for sin is death. And yet it seems in this world we're comfortable with sin more and more and we're home with sin. Sin, for some, is just an oopsie. Something that just happens. Some say we just need to get over it. Or that's just the way I am. That's just the way I live. You sin, I sin. Why, why should we make such a big deal about sin? Why should we? Because Jesus died for our sins. He had to die for your sin 
die for my sin. Have we overlooked that this morning? Why hasn't God destroyed you since you woke up this morning? Surely you and I have done enough to justify it today. And there's coming a day where you will be called to give an account of your life. You will not get advance notice of that day. It will come like a thief in the night. And that might sound like an unpleasant message to you, but friend, I don't want to hide the truth from you this morning. Every man, woman, and child on earth deserves God's judgment against their sin. And the fact that your life continued this morning and there was breath in your lungs and strength in your legs to bring you here this morning shows that God is extraordinarily merciful. And the question this morning is, will the patience and mercy of God lead you to repentance? Repentance from your sin of trusting in yourself for your own salvation. To turn to Jesus. To repent is to confess the sinfulness of our sin against God. It's to make a full and open acknowledgement that we have done what is wrong in God's sight. We failed to do what is right. It's an honest evaluation of our life, admitting our our guilt of pride and lust and greed and bitterness and worry and self-righteousness and all the other sins. And to repent, it means to be contrite also, to feel sadness and to be sorry for what we have done, not because we're worried about the consequences, but because we're grieved by our sin as an offense to a holy God. That's not all. Kent Hughes calls repentance a change of mind that brings a change of actions. So that means we turn away from our sin. It's not enough to to know about our sin or even shed tears about our sins, but we need to turn away from our sins. Friend, have you repented this way towards God? Confession is an intellectual aspect of repentance. Knowing in our minds that we have sinned. And and contrition is the emotional aspect of repentance. We we feel it in our hearts that we've sinned. And change is the volitional aspect of repentance. When we determine in our hearts that we will turn away from that sin and we will follow God. And Martin Luther wrote that when Jesus said repent, he meant repent and keep on repenting. We repent first when we come to, to Christ in faith, but we keep on repenting as we walk in this Christian life. And we repent and we walk with the Lord and we continue to produce fruit in our lives as we follow Him. And Jesus says in verse 6, He tells him another parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Said the divine dresser, Look, for for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig, it or dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The fig tree evokes images of Israel's golden past and hopes for a blessed future. God had cultivated Israel to be a fruitful tree in his vineyard, but they had turned away from him. And Israel's opportunities are fading quickly. They're on extended time. It's overtime. And the gardener gives the tree one last opportunity to bear fruit. It seems that Jesus, the great vine dresser, 
is giving one more opportunity to these religious leaders to turn from their wicked ways and to repent. And surely, God expects the same for us as a church. Let me ask, on our first Sunday back to regular services, how did you utilize COVID to cultivate spiritual fruit for the glory of God? Do you remember well over a year ago, the church, we walked through the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5? How did you do this last year, cultivating that fruit in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we call ourselves Christians, then we are connected to the true and living vine, Jesus Christ. And the power comes from Him. So how are we doing? How have we done this last year in cultivating fruit with Christ's help? We ought to bear good fruit for God. We should be growing in love for one another here in the church. Has that happened? Do we speak to and about one another with love? About patience. Are you more patient today than a year ago? God sure gave you a lot of opportunities and me in the last year to grow in patience, didn't He? How about faithfulness? For the first few months of COVID, some of us had given so much time. Everything was closed. Were you faithful in your time in the Word and in prayer? What about gentleness? What a year to work on gentleness, huh? Lots of anger was shared this past year. We can understand this reaction from the world because they don't have God living inside of them. What about us, church? Are we growing in gentleness? Would people say about you, yeah, he or she is really gentle towards others? When that person did or said something that you utterly disagreed with, were you gentle with them in your words and your actions and your heart? Paul says to us in Colossians 1 that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That should be our aim. Otherwise, we're just taking up space. And I have to ask, Edgewood Bible Church, this facility, this congregation, these people, are we just taking up space in this? Would it be better for us to sell and to move and allow another church to come in here to be fruitful? I'm seriously asking you to consider that. God calls us to make our lives count. God calls us as a church family to make ministry here count. To make labor in this world count. So are we going to take these warnings seriously or not? I mean, how many warnings do we need before we'll repent? It is grace that God would bring these warnings to us this morning. So don't push away. Lean into it. Listen to what the Word says. God is long-suffering. God is slow to anger. God does get angry. There will be a time when an unproductive tree will be cut down. John the Baptist preached that to us earlier in the book of Luke. 
Jesus is saying that time is running out for them. The threat of judgment becomes a call for repentance. And the, the reason we still have time to repent is that God is patient with us. So we've seen that they need to, re, to pay attention and take action. Third, understand the kingdom. Look at verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. She glorified God. The miracle itself shows Jesus to be doing the very thing that the Sabbath was meant to point towards. The Sabbath was meant to be a day in which God's covenant people were to look forward to redemption from the judgment of God upon a sin-filled world. And this woman's suffering here was severe. She was stooped over in pain. This disability affected every part of her life. It limited her ability to work. It disturbed her ability to rest. I'm sure she never got an enjoyable full night's rest. It, It hindered her relationships. If she can't hold her head up high, how is she going to carry on conversations with others? This woman's dignity as God's creation was severely diminished. And I'm sure she struggled with moments of deep discouragement. She had suffered for nearly 20 years, it says. And anyone with a serious disability can testify it's hard to be content with chronic pain and and permanent physical limitations. She, I'm sure, was tempted to self-pity at least sometimes in her life. But here's Jesus. He's teaching the synagogue where she comes into worship and he sees her. He noticed her. And I'm sure people saw her all the time. She stood out as strange, but but Jesus' eyes on her that day was different. It wasn't a look of disgust or bewilderment. It was a look of love. Everyone else ignores her, but Jesus sees her. Jesus is the God who sees, who notices, who saves. Jesus, full of compassion, calls her to come. And what does he do? He delivers her from the oppression that she was under. And I want to pause for a moment and caution you, friends, not every medical difficulty is a direct attack from Satan. We only know it was here because Jesus tells us in the passage. Jesus touches her, and she's freed. She's saved from this disability. This was an uncommon gesture. Most people and religious leaders refused to have any direct contact with women. Jesus reaches out and laid his hands on her, and when he did, he immediately stood up straight. And what a sight that must have been to behold. You know, they wanted more signs. Here's a sign. I'm sure she was well known as the disabled woman bent over, and here she is standing straight, fully healed, and rejoicing. I mean, everyone should stop and rejoice at the amazing power of God, right? It would seem like that's the the natural reaction to what just happened. But look at verse 14. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done, come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. 
This leader is like a toddler who asks for a sandwich over and over and over and is never happy when you give him one. Rather than glorifying God for what he had done, he only finds fault. And Jesus, in his holy indignation, will turn to him and unleash biblical truth. Verse 15, the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his, this bond on the Sabbath day? This example in the synagogue is striking. It's shocking, actually. This teacher believes in animal rights, but it's not concerned about the rights of other humans. And Jesus goes to her. He, he stresses her humanity in comparison to the ox and the donkey. And he teaches of her privilege. She's a daughter of Abraham. She shows, he shows her, her tragedy and the misery being bound by Satan and disabled. And then he frees her. And all this man wants to do is protest. Do you see how hard-hearted this man was? The cold indifference he ignores her needs and is annoyed now that Jesus heals her. It's astonishing. And this passage clearly teaches us that there's something significantly wrong with first century Judaism. I read a story this week in a commentary of some folks who would who had just bought a boat. They were in California and, and they were going to take it out into the lake. And, and they were having problems. No matter what they do, and they took the boat, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go like it needed to. It was sluggish at every turn. No matter how much they they applied power to, for it to go. And after an hour of frustration, they floated to a nearby marina to get assistance. And the workman comes out and checks everything topside. The, the, the engine worked great. The outboard drive went up and down. The propeller was the correct size and pitch. And then he jumped un, into the water to check underneath. And he quickly comes up, almost choking because he's laughing so hard. Because under the boat, the trailer was still strapped. This was the case, the same case in first century synagogue. They want to go for a ride and the trailer strapped. It wasn't functioning as it should because it's tied down with legalism. As 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done. The crowd rejoices when Jesus heals her and rebukes this leader. Those leaders were rightly exposed, yet they're unmoved. They needed to repent, but like the Pharisees in chapter 7, they refused to humble themselves. I mean, what better day for a woman to be delivered from a debilitating disability than Sabbath? This healing points us to that final day. Final day where there will be no disability in the kingdom of God. Everything that is crooked will be straightened out one day. Then he continues. And this, it connects. Okay, Verse 18 through 21 does connect. He said, therefore, in verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and it became a tree. The birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven 
And a woman took and hid and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Jesus now tells two parables to show that the that despite fierce opposition to his mission, God's rule will continue to grow. The first parable teaches that the kingdom of God grows outward and upward. It starts small like a mustard seed, but it grows and stretches like a mighty tree that birds will, will find their nest in. The mustard was the tiniest seed that farmers sowed in ancient Israel with a diameter of barely one millimeter. Everyone knew how small a mustard seed was. And it wasn't so much the speed that it grew, but the size that it grew from. The second parable teaches that the kingdom of God grows inward and through. It's like yeast. can't see it, but it works in its, its way through the entire batch of dough. And like the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven starts with something that seems insignificant. And when the woman adds the, the yeast to the dough, it gets mixed in and becomes totally invisible. Yet it will still have its effect. Because overnight, the dough will rise. And even a small amount of leaven will cause the dough to grow. I don't know if you've noticed, but mostly when the Bible speaks of leaven, it speaks of it negatively. Apostle Paul warned the church about the hidden sin. He strongly wrote in 1 Corinthians, you, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And he's saying there, a little bit of sin here with gossip, a little bit of sin there with disunity and the church, all of it will be corrupted. It just takes a small amount of yeast to produce the necessary rising influence. And that's why Paul warns the church to remove the sin in their midst because it will affect everything. But Jesus here isn't talking about leaven as sin. Quite the contrary, he's using it as in the positive. That the kingdom will grow just the way that leaven causes bread to rise. This example causes us to realize that small packages can bring small, or excuse me, can bring large results. And the beginning of the kingdom may not be impressive to the religious leaders, but it will bring mighty growth. See, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he speaks of a place where God's reign. Absolutely, and that absolute rule is carried out according to justice, mercy, and righteousness. Jesus is announcing the breakthrough of the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of God is not merely a piece of real estate on earth, but made up of people who are redeemed by the king. And what Jesus has in view here is the rule and reign of God that breaks into the hearts of men and women and crushes the power of Satan. But not everyone recognizes or even welcomes the kingdom of God as we see the response of the leader in verse 14. Hypocrites don't recognize the kingdom of God when it comes. They're only focused on one kingdom. Can you guess what that is? Their own. And when you break the rules of their kingdom, they'll let you know. So what connection do these parables here in verses 18 through 21 have to do with the prior verses? What is it? What does what the woman being restored to health have to do with a mustard seed and leaven? I, there is a connection. The parables explain the synagogue miracle, and the synagogue miracle is a picture of what the parables teach. Jesus is saying, when you see the kingdom of God in your midst, it never seems to be very much. It always seems like a mustard seed or leaven. Don't miss the presence of the kingdom in this. And the growth of God's kingdom is seen in the healing of the woman. 
The leaders don't see it. There are times when the growth of the kingdom almost seems imperceptible. That way when Jesus came to earth, down in the flesh, concealed, born in a barn, laying in a manger. It was even more true at the cross when the power and beauty of His sacrifice for us was obscured by the ugliness of His suffering and His bloody body hanging on the tree. So also the life-giving work of the Gospel remains unseen in many ways. It regularly grows behind closed doors. And yet it's growing. People regularly discount the local church because it's hard to see the growth. They come in and they see the the simple, the small, the insignificance of an hour and a half service of worship. And they think surely God is going to do something bigger than this, right? I mean, surely God is going to have to move in bigger ways than, than a small care group that meets. Or a Sunday school class. Or a service with prayers and songs and a 40 to 45 minute talk. Time and again, this is how the Lord works. He uses the local church. The kingdom grows as it grows in the hearts of little children at VBS who promise to live for Jesus. The kingdom grows when husbands take the spiritual responsibility in the home and the wife respects her husband and they grow together. Kingdom grows in the workplace when the Christian continues to build the relationship with the transgender coworker, planting seeds of the gospel in weekly conversations so that they are able to hear the good news. The kingdom grows in neighborhoods when we share with those in need and display a strange kindness that this world doesn't understand, all with the purpose to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So don't discount the small hidden, imperceptible growth of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is much different than earthly kingdoms. See, things on earth need flash and might and bigness to be accepted and championed, but God doesn't need all that. As we've seen throughout history, things that rise to power suddenly and spectacularly only fade from the scene in a relative blink of an eye. Here one day and gone the next. So, when our churches and our daily lives seem ordinary, unspectacular, and mundane, take heart, friends, and learn a lesson from the mustard seed and the loaf. God doesn't often work in ways that seem impressive in the beginning, but He is working. It grows from something small, seemingly insignificant in the beginning, something big. We're not in a losing struggle. The devil has no power to challenge Christ. The kingdom will grow. Well, we've been talking about the kingdom. We need to transition here as we end our time to the Lord's Supper. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew 26. I want you to look at this passage here. I'm sure you've read it before. Time where we spend the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, just three verses. Look at it as I read haven't gotten your communion cups, you can go grab it now. We're going to open those up in a minute. Matthew 26, look at verse 26 through 29. 
Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I love that last verse in 29. That last sentence makes me happy. Why does it make me happy? Why does it cause me to smile? Because in those moments when I read it, when I consider what he's saying, there is yet a future banquet coming. And this month, when we celebrate a communion, we're closer another month to that great feast. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember and proclaim Jesus' death. In the Lord's Supper, we share together by faith the saving benefits of Christ's sacrifice for us. Friends, that's why the Lord's Supper is only for Christians. Because only Christians know what it means to be saved. And in the Lord's Supper, we experience a foretaste of that heavenly banquet. The Lord's Supper is an appetizer for the feast that will commence on the day when Christ reunites heaven and earth. Listen to God's promise in Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Think of that. On that future day, all of our tears and shame and guilt will be forgotten forever. All of, on that day, all of the fears of what the future holds will be lifted and pushed aside. On that day, death won't be deferred to another day or deflected or avoided, but death will be devoured. All of our miseries will be gone. Joy, eternal joy will fill our hearts. And what will take place that day? What does Isaiah say? Feast. A feast of the most excellent kind. A feast for all people from every nation. A feast forever with Jesus. Doesn't this news make you want to sing? To respond with joy? Doesn't it make the hairs in the back of your neck rise up a little bit in, with anticipation? Soon we'll be home and we will eat. We will feast together with our King. But for now, we have this meal, this bread. It's not so much a piece of bread. Sorry, it's like a squished packing peanut, I think. But there's leaven or unleavened in it. And the juice, well, the juice isn't quite wine. Although if we left it in there for a while, it might ferment more. It's small. Small piece of bread, small bit of juice. 
That's on purpose. See, the appetizer isn't supposed to fill you up. It holds you over to the meal. And this isn't the final meal. But it points our minds and our hearts to that greater meal. To that feast. Friends, this is just a foretaste to the greater meal that we will have together with Christ on that night. But for now, we will wait, we'll pray, and we will remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. He gave himself for us. We celebrate that this morning. I want you to do something a little different this morning. As we're opening this and as we're partaking of the bread and the juice together, I want you to look around at one another. Don't stare at one another. Look around. Because you're looking at brothers and sisters. We're going to do this for all eternity. And so when you're looking at that brother and sister, you can see in them what Christ has done in their life by saving them. Rejoice in what Christ has done in their life. And we will think, think ahead of how awesome that day will be when we join together. One fully united body of Christ. Enjoy that feast. Go ahead and peel that top layer off. Read Matthew's verses here again. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Peel the, the cover off the juice there. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it. All of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And we look forward to that day. Amen.